0: I never, ever, ever put a free app on my phone. I always do the paid app. And a lot of people are like, why would you do that? If there's two apps that are identical and one is free and one is $7.99, why would you pay the
1: $7.99? And it's simple, privacy. There will always be somebody stronger, faster, and smarter than you. Surviving depends on your adaptability to change. Those who are the most adaptable are dialed in. Welcome to the show, uh, Dialed In, Elevate Exchange. I'm your host, Kyle Burt. So uh, today's guest, let me set the stage for us a little bit, all right? So Eric Cole, a computer cybersecurity expert with 20 years hands-on experience. He consults in the information technology and cybersecurity realm for Fortune 500 companies. Formerly 11 years in the CIA, yes, that CIA, Uh, The Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th President, also known as Barack Obama, and Cybersecurity Advisor for Bill Gates, uh, currently serves Purdue University's Executive Advisory Board, and he does his consulting with Secure Anchor Consulting. So let's bring out Dr. Eric Cole. Dr. Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you for
0: having me, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, Awesome. It's it's, it's fabulous to have you here. So uh, as we start every show, we kick it off with uh, what are you the most dialed into?
0: I would say I'm the most dialed into making cyberspace a safe place to live, work, and raise a family. There's so many threats out there. Some we're aware of, some that we're not. And we live most of our lives in cyberspace. And I'm on
1: that mission to make it safe. Excellent. Excellent. So tell me a little, let's unpack your background a little bit, like help, help me set the stage with, you know, uh, how you got to where you are now. So I started off my career at the CIA
0: and it was one of those situations where I've sort of learned that you always have to trust your instinct because I interviewed, got a co-op with them. And then once you get your clearances and they bring you on board, it's a reverse interview because interns don't go against their overhead. So everyone's trying to convince you to work for their department. So I'm interviewing with the Network Security Operations Center, a programming group, an operating system group, and this little tiny group. I mean, this is late 80s, early 90s, called cybersecurity. And I went and talked to my advisors and friends and family, and they are all like, Eric, networking is the safe bet. Everything's going to be networking. Everything's going to be interconnected. Networking is what you should do. And they said, but this cybersecurity stuff sounds really, really cool. And they were all like, yeah, but it's risky and it's a fad. And we're going to figure out cybersecurity. It's just passwords and patching. And by mid-90s, we'll have it all figured out. I don't always listen well to other folks. And I like taking the risky approach. So I said, what the heck? I'm going to go for cybersecurity. And I'm in that department. And then I remember when an all-hands meeting, if you ever watched Tom Clancy movies, and there's the big bubble. At CIA headquarters, where it fits a couple thousand people. And we're in that meeting and they're talking about this new thing called the internet. And we're gonna deploy some systems on the internet. And one of my big philosophies in life is don't be afraid to ask questions. So I'm raising my hand. I'm the only one, the only one that's raising my hand. That my boss is in the front and she looks at me and she's going like this, like to put your hand down. And I'm waving to her, thinking she's waving to me. And I ask a question that changes my life forever. And that question was this, how do we know these systems are secure? How do we know they're protected? How do we know they're locked down? And it turns out the answer to that question is the only way to prove a system is not secure is by breaking into it. The only way to prove security is the negative is breaking in and hacking. So I became a professional hacker for eight years where I was able to hack or break into anything on the planet And I'll tell you, after doing that for eight years, I got bored because it's easy. Because any system that has functionality will always have vulnerabilities. You can always break in. So after that, I left the CIA, and I really began the second phase of my career, which was focused on cyber defense and protecting and securing organizations.
1: Wow, man! So can you could you imagine if like uh, that that was true? Like, yeah, cybersecurity is just a fad. You know, we're going to passwords and patches and. Yeah, that's it. The end. End of story. Like we're done. But no, I, I like what you said. I mean, uh, anything with an IP address, any any device. Uh, what the only thing that the only things that we that we do know is that we know that we're not sure that it's been hacked. That's the only thing we know, right? That we're not sure. So um, to that point, right? So uh, take take us uh, take us along with uh, you know where, where this has led to now with your cybersecurity consulting.
0: So when I left the CIA. I went in and I did positions at large companies. So I have I was probably one of the first CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers in early 90s for large telcos. I was CTO for McAfee, Chief Information Officer for healthcare organizations. But what I realized in being CIO, CTO, and CISO is you're an overhead function. Your budget depends on the rest of the business doing well. And as you can imagine, that got to the dot bomb 2000 timeframe where all of a sudden these companies aren't doing as well. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there and my budget got cut by 90%. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't make any logical sense. The threats are still real. The exposures are still real. I'm not controlling my destiny. So that's when I really did my dual hat of becoming an entrepreneur and starting and building cybersecurity companies that can really help make a difference and give companies cost-effective roadmaps. And that's really the big thing. I know we have a lot of security folks and techie folks on here that I really want to send the message. You can be an entrepreneur. You can own your own business. We sort of think that uh, going to business school is one skill set. And being a geek is another. I completely disagree. I think they're together, and I think that really smart technical people should build their own companies to make their own money, as opposed to making other people rich and pursuing other people's dreams.
1: Oh, I love it, man. One hundred percent resonates with me as well, uh, guys. Uh, I brought back the phone lines for the, for this one because this is a rare opportunity to chat with Dr. Eric Cole right here live on on the internet with us. So if the way it works, you just dial in. You'll be instantly connected with us, and uh, you'll be able to have a conversation, ask your question, whatever. So, uh, Eric, uh, so you are a target, right? So that's kind of your your headline here. So let's let's break that down, right? So when you say that, what do you what do you mean? Like, give us some context.
0: The reason I come up with that is I talk with a lot of executives. I talk with business owners. I talk with teachers and parents, and the number one thing I always hear. Oh, Eric, I'm not a target. No one's going to come after me. No one's going to worry about my business. They're going to go after the government or they're going to go after big corporations or they're going to go after Fortune 50 organizations. No one's going to mess with me on the internet. Therefore, I don't have to worry about security. And it's actually the opposite. Because if you think about it, these really big companies that you hear about in the news are really the anomalies. They're happening once or twice a quarter, this really, really big company gets compromised because they made some mistakes. But if you think about it, a really big company, they're spending 30 to $40 million a year on security, and they have 300 people monitoring their security. That's going to be hard to break into. On the other hand, if you look at smaller companies, medium-sized companies, individuals, parents, and teachers, how much money do you spend on security each year? My bet is $49.99 for endpoint security product or zero. And how big is your security staff? Well, it's your nephew's cousin who's 16 that he does that when he's not playing uh, video games right at home. We're not really investing time, energy, or effort. So from an adversary's perspective, who's gonna be an easier target? And we've seen, especially with the COVID and everything happening, the amount of cyber adversaries that are now targeting small, medium-sized organizations and individuals has increased by 400% because it's easier and simpler to break in. And the new model of cyber criminals today is don't steal a million dollars from one company, steal a dollar from a million different people because it's easier, quicker, and goes unnoticed.
1: Oh, yeah. Who's going to report that? You know? Exactly. It's it's, it's too much work to report it. It's like, yeah, whatever. It's a dollar. So, yeah, no, uh, very well, very well said. Uh, We had a question come in as well. So, I want to put that up on the screen here. Um, So, this is from uh, Vinnie uh, Rao. Uh, What should US companies on US Privacy Shield prepare for now that the EU does not recognize it anymore? It's a great question.
0: It's an awesome question. But what it really comes down to is being compliant with regulation doesn't necessarily make you secure. I'll tell you, I always joke with folks, if you look at every retailer, what does every retailer have in common that's been breached? They've all been PCI compliant. So regulation doesn't mean compliance. So to me, there's going to be new data regulation in the United States. It has to happen. There's going to be new data regulation around the world. It has to happen. It might be a year, it might be five years, it might be 10 years, but it really is going to happen. And what I'll tell you is focus on the security of your data, don't get caught up on the different regulations. So you as any organization, you should be able to go in and list out what is your critical data, where is it located, who has access to it, make sure it's properly encrypted and protected with the keys stored on a separate server, And make sure that the data that you have on individuals is only being used for the intended purpose and that they're notified that you have their data. And if they don't want you to have their data anymore, you securely remove it and delete it off your servers. If you focus in on those core areas, you'll be prepared for any regulation. Because any new regulation, any old regulation, any other uh, components that are out there is all going to be data focused. And if you have a good grasp on protecting and securing your data, that's how you're going to win this game.
1: Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, so, so Eric, uh, you are frequently called upon by media outlets um, just for your cybersecurity expertise. You know, uh, help us out. Like, maybe you have, you have some examples and, you know, the names have changed. Like, re- like, really set the stage with some examples of, like, the worst that you've seen.
0: Typically, and, and I guess it's how you define worst. So, the, the way most news services and conventional people would define the worst breaches we've seen are ones that are public, well-known with high numbers. So we've seen uh, some big hotel change with 500 million records compromised, and we've seen some healthcare organizations with 300 million records compromised. And yes, they went undetected for two and a half to three years. They didn't catch the attack. There was a lot of impact, a lot of damage. But in my opinion, those are not the worst because they were detected and we know about them. The worst is what's happening right now where several of our listeners have been compromised for two years and they have no clue. Their data's been stolen and they have no clue. Critical client information has been compromised and they have no clue. To me, those are the worst breaches that are out there. And here's something you have to remember. I work with those news outlets and I call them almost once or twice a week with a new breach. I get notified probably, it averages about 11 breaches a week that I'm made aware of. And when I call the news channel, you know what I hear most of the time? Eric, that's not big enough for us to cover. And I'm like, a 14 million record breach of people's bank accounts and personal data, that's not big enough for you to cover? And they're like, no, I'm like, what if you're one of those 14 million, right? But what the media channels have told me is Eric, Unless it's over 120 million records, or it's over $300 million in damage, we don't care. We don't care when we're not going to cover it. So you have to remember that what's being displayed on the news is the outliers, the few and far between. That's not the reality. The reality is organizations are getting compromised. The average breach we see is about $3 records being stolen and the average cost of a breach is about $400,000 to those organizations.
1: Right, so if you're a cyber criminal, you probably wanna go well below that threshold so that you're not looked at, right? I mean, cause it's easier, it's easier, right? There's less defenses um, and there's less attention on you, right? Exactly,
0: and we've seen that where a lot of the attacks that are happening now are purposely staying under that radar so it goes unnoticed
1: yeah no that's excellent that's excellent so um uh so uh what else what what else do we need to know like like uh i know that uh there's all these apps out there there's all the, all these tools and like everyone seems to be like bolting on like in car insurance companies like like all state i know like everyone's bolting on these like we'll, we'll do dark web scanning of your of your background like is that is that stuff legit or is uh you know how do we decipher like how do we make the decisions of what uh what to use. There's a lot of noise out there, right? Exactly.
0: And I'm going to answer it two ways. So actually scanning the dark web, looking for information popping up, monitoring uh, unusual activity against your accounts, that is legit. The service that 80% of these companies are selling you is absolutely not legit because they're not really going in and checking, verifying, and validating it. So I I would always go in and my my recommendation to anybody, if you're going to hire somebody to do something, is you should understand what it is. There's a lot of different programs and other entities out there that can do this monitoring for you. I would recommend go with the best of the breed providers, see what your information and visibility is before you just go in for one of these bolt-ons. It's sort of like going in to a McDonald's and them saying, hey, do you want us to do an oil change of your car, right? It just, it doesn't make any sense that you would do that. So I always say, if you need those services, utilize separate best of breed providers. Don't just go on with the bolt-ons because a lot of them are just taking your money and laughing all the way to the bank. And the other thing is, check and make sure that they're actually doing their jobs. So one thing I do, and yes, I'm sometimes accused of being a little crazy and paranoid, but I'm busy. So I do have some folks monitoring my credit and doing other things, but I will purposely, once a quarter, have one of my interns at my company try to open up a fraudulent credit card in my name or go in and try to make an unauthorized purchase with my credit card. And then I see if those services notify me. I actually do a test to see if they're actually doing their job. And I tell you, some of them do and some of them don't. So don't just write the check every year and say, oh, I must be fine. Here's my rule. If you're paying money and they haven't notified you about any activity, any issues or any problems for nine months, either you are a unique unicorn and you are a special person that nobody cares don't take that option, or they're not doing their job. You should get notified at least once or twice a quarter about some activity against your account. And that'll give you a little baseline to see if they're really doing their job and not. But the only other thing I add to that is two of my key phrases. One is we covered you are a target. The second one that's really important is cybersecurity is your responsibility. You can go in and pay other people You can outsource somebody monitoring your credit, but here's what you have to remember. If your credit gets stolen, you're the one that's gonna be liable. You're the one that's gonna be out the money. So you really have to embrace and take ownership of it.
1: Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you kind of already answered this, but a LinkedIn user said, uh, what ways are there to research whether your data is compromised? So if you wanna address that more specifically. Uh, so,
0: So first and foremost, the best method is to turn on account notification for anything that's financially driven. So most people don't realize that a lot of these banking apps, e-commerce apps, credit card apps, and all these others, they have security built in, but it's not turned on by default. We're sort of at this interesting turning point where these companies recognize, okay, security is important. People want it, so we're going to build it in, but they don't want the inconvenience, so we're not going to turn it on. And most people, when they think about turning on security, they'll think about two-factor authentication, they'll go in and think about private groups and social media and things like that. The most important one that everyone forgets about is account notification. So I have with all my bank accounts for both personal and business, whenever anybody logs in to the website to monitor my account under my credentials, I get a text notification. Whenever anybody tries to do an EFT and electronic fund transfer or uh, cashing checks or things like that, I get a text notification. Now, yes, you can argue that there's a little bit of an inconvenience. Eric, I'm going to go in and get five or six of these a day and I have to hit yes and it's a little bit of an inconvenience. Yes, but what you have to remember is living in cyberspace is going to have some inconveniences. So here's your option. Option one is your inconvenience for two to three minutes a day because you're getting text notifications, but you're getting visibility on when your data is compromised and you can take action. Or option two is you're not inconvenienced for two or three minutes a day, but then in six, nine or 12 months, and I can guarantee it'll happen, you're gonna be out two or three or $400,000. Which option do you want? You want option one? Or option two. And it answers the question of whether your data is compromised. Most people don't realize this, but with bank and financial transactions and debit cards and things like that, there's a 24 hour window. So if somebody's going in and stealing your money or taking your assets, you have 24 hours to reverse it. After 24 hours, the money's gone. So if you don't have text notification and you're not visible real time of what's happening, you might check your account four, five, six, seven days later, and all of a sudden you're out 20,000, 200,000. And by then, because it's more than 24 hours, the money is long gone. So yeah, you can go in and look on LinkedIn, look at these different things. But the best way to see if data is compromised is just be vigilant and visible. If you're getting... False logins. If you're getting alerts that somebody's trying to break into your account, if you're seeing fraudulent financial transactions, that's a really good indicator your data has been compromised, and then you would take action to change, fix, and remediate the damage.
1: Oh, wow, wow, oh, that's a, that's incredible information. I appreciate that insight. You you said something in there, and it, it triggered something in me. Like I did a, I ran a quick poll this uh, this morning. I should have ran it. Uh, I should have had more time to do it. But let me share my screen right now so you can see the poll. So I did a poll on LinkedIn uh, to ask people basically the, the duality between friction and cybersecurity, right? Like it's always that duality, like you sacrifice friction uh, for cybersecurity. So I said, what's most important to you, productivity or cybersecurity? And 16 votes, we got the completely divided room. Uh, is that, does that seem about accurate to you?
0: Uh, I, I, I would think that I, a lot of people probably knew the correct answer, yeah. Uh, to that one and, and pick that. I I, I would say my, my response and remember we're among friends so, and hopefully uh, nobody gets really, really mad at me for this one. But for that 50 percent that picks cybersecurity, my question would be, does your friends and family member know you lie or do you just do it when you're online? Right. So but, but, but here's the thing you got to remember. I, I think your audience is cybersecurity people. So if you have CISOs, if you have cybersecurity folks, they're going to say cybersecurity. I do similar surveys when I go to PTA because I love helping and giving back to the community. And when you're talking to teachers and parents and other folks like that, it's about 95% productivity and 5% cybersecurity and very similar with executives. So I, I it's interesting that you got a 50-50, but I think that's because you had a well-educated audience.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought that was a little. I thought that was a little fishy. Uh, I, I I set it up right because I I know too. Like um, even in my own personal life, like I ca- I care about cybersecurity as well. But you know, I got these voice assistants behind me. They're muted right now. But I love the voice assistants. Like, what am I going to do? I know that there there's security flaws there, but like they're very convenient, right? So, and then you know, at what point do you uh, sacrifice too much productivity for cybersecurity that you? Can sort of not entirely, but sort of become irrelevant with the technology that's out there, right? So, like, there's that duality as well, right? Exactly. And I would ask for the 50% of people that said
0: cybersecurity, I'd like to know how many of them have Alexas in their home? How many of them have uh, voice assist turn on their cell phones? Because he, but, but you hit the point is, which to me, you have to always balance it. So the way I always describe it is you can achieve 100% security. It's actually really easy. Yeah, Go Amish. You give up your tech, give up your home, get a horse and pony, and you're good. But what I always tell folks is 100% security is zero functionality. So the easiest way to think about it is every time you add functionality, you're decreasing security. So anytime you add a new app to your phone, decreasing security. Anytime you put an Alexa in your home, decreasing security. Anytime you do Amazon home delivery, decreasing security. So all functionality decisions in life are always going to decrease your security. Here's the trick. Instead of asking one question, which is what always people ask, what is the value? What is the benefit? What do I get out of this? Always ask a second question, which is what is the security risk? What is the exposure? What is the impact? And then once you have those two data points, it becomes easy. Is the value or benefit worth the risk or exposure? And if the value and benefit is worth the risk or exposure, then you should do it. If the value and benefit is not worth the risk or exposure, then you shouldn't do it. And I'll give a simple example as I have a second Uh, townhome that I just use for my personal business. And I'm the only one that really is here. Sometimes employees come, but over the winter time, I would sometimes travel. This was before COVID when you actually were allowed to travel. uh, I would be gone for three or four weeks and there would be boxes that would be out front and they would get snowed on and iced on and they'd get destroyed. And I live in a community center, so sometimes the packages would disappear and I had problems or issues. So I actually, for that resident, my second home, I use Amazon Home Delivery, because the benefit of having somebody put a package inside is worth the risk or exposure of somebody opening the door and there's a camera there and I can monitor it. So to me, I made a risk-based decision that the value or benefit far outweighs those risk or concerns. As long as you're doing that, then you're cybersecurity minded and you're thinking the way you should. The problem is a lot of people, a lot of businesses and individuals, they only think of functionality until after there's a breach. And then they say, oh, what's the risk? What's the exposure? I should have handled that and dealt with it later. And then one quick thing on that, I love reading. I read usually one to two books a week. And last year, I started reading books on Warren Buffett. And the way Warren Buffett invests is he always says, what's the upside? What's the downside? And he always will say, can I minimize or reduce the downside? That's why Warren Buffett hates bitcoins, because the upside is huge. But the downside is so ridiculous, you could lose everything. It's not worth it. And what I find fascinating is Warren Buffett's investment strategy of always looking at the downside and saying, can you live with the downside, is the exact same philosophy I've been teaching for 10 years about cybersecurity. So I always jokingly say, if you don't trust me, trust Warren Buffett, right? My advice is backed up and endorsed by Warren Buffett. He doesn't know it yet, but it's backed up in the books.
1: <laughs> oh, I know, I love that, I love it. How, how, how'd that go again? Like if you can't live with the downside, then, then don't do it basically? Exactly, so you always ask, what is the upside?
0: What is the downside? And say, can you live with the downside? Is that downside acceptable to you? So in an investment strategy, if you're putting in 100,000 and the downside is you can lose 20,000, is that acceptable? If you're willing to lose $20,000, then do it. In cybersecurity, the upside is you put an Alexa in your home. The downside is it's recording, listening, and archiving everything you're saying. Is that okay to you? Is that an acceptable risk? And if it is, then buy an Alexa.
1: Yeah, and a relevant comment, uh, Jim Young, cop friend of mine, calls Alexa wiretap. Yes,
0: it, it, Jim, Jim, you are spot on. And I also, one of my other lines of business is I'm an expert witness. So, I actually testify in high profile trials. And it was about a year and a half ago, I was one, I believe, one of the first cases where a recording from Alexa was actually admissible as evidence in court, as firsthand evidence in that particular trial. So, Jim, you are spot on. It is a wiretap. And what I always love is people always go in and go, Eric, Alexa isn't listening to what you're saying. And I'm like, think about it. If I say, Alexa, turn on the radio, and it responds. How else can it respond if it's not listening to you? And it's funny, you see the light go off of people's head going, oh yeah, I guess it is listening. right? I guess it is recording, but they just never connect
1: the dots. It's only listening if it hears that word, right? (laughs) Exactly, it it doesn't listen any other time. (laughs) It knows, like telekinesis, it knows like, oh, you're about to speak right now in my name and listens for it. If only it could work that (laughs) (laughs) way. Uh, you said something earlier, too, about um, about apps on your phone. And I know that's that's kind of a concern. Like, uh, you know, I, I have a I have a four year old and she's always downloading apps on my iPad and phone without my permission. So like, you know, what what's the risk there?
0: Uh, f- f- first, I will say with a four-year-old, Kyle, enjoy the time. Uh, my-, my second oldest heads off to college in two weeks, so I have two of them off to college. They grow up so quick, so enjoy the time with them uh, when they're four four or five years old. I mean, it's awesome. Every stage is great, but they grow up so quick. You know, one of the things I always say is your phone is spying on you, and it's because you're allowing it to. We read a lot of these reports now with Apple and even Android that out of the box, they're fairly safe, that they're fairly safe, they're fairly secure, and because they have things turned off, they're locked down in a pretty secure state. The problem is we are so addicted to our apps that we don't even pay attention. Do you realize if there's an app that if you download it and it will automatically turn on your mic turn on your camera or open your files without asking you, that violates Android and Apple's terms of service and it won't appear in the Apple store. Oh, but, yeah. here's, but here's what people don't realize. If there's an app that asks you once at installation, can I access your camera? Can I access your location? Can I access your files? And you say yes once for the remainder of, that app is on your phone. It can access all those devices and never tell you. And that actually passes the term of service that's out there. And it brings up an interesting component. In my opinion, I never, ever, ever put a free app on my phone. I always do the paid app. And a lot of people are like, why would you do that? If there's two apps that are identical and one is free and one is 7.99, dollars why would you pay the 7.99? dollars And it's simple, privacy. Do you realize the free apps, in order for them to work, you have to hit yes to can you access the mic? Yes. Can you access the camera? Yes. Can you access my location? Yes. Can you access my email? Yes. If you don't say yes, the free app doesn't work. So with these free apps, you're exchanging your data and personal privacy for the app. Or if you pay 7.99 and that's on the high end, some of them are a buck 99. Then you are paying for the app. They're making their money. They don't have to make it on uh, selling your data, and then they don't have to turn on the camera, turn on the microphone, or access your email. So the question I always ask myself is: My data worth a buck 99? Is my data worth 7.99? And I always answer yes. So unless it's a paid app, I'm not going to use it. And my favorite, favorite example of this is one of the most downloaded uh, apps is a flashlight app. It's been downloaded over four and a half million times, and that app is free. But in order for the app to work, when you download it the first time and you run the flashlight app, it asks you, can I access your camera? Can I access your location? Can I access your microphone? Let me ask you a question. Why does a flashlight app need to go in and access your microphone, camera, and pictures? It doesn't, but that's how these companies make money. So you're seeing a lot of these foreign adversaries are building really, really cool apps that require direct access to your phone, and that's how they're making all their money on the back end.
1: So no, very, very relevant topic right now. Um, iOS 14 is, uh, you know, a lot of people have iPhones. iOS 14 is in beta right now, and I have a test demo kit. So I have a have the beta installed, and w- what's interesting now is like when you go into apps, it's telling you at the top a little pop down says, uh, you know, Chrome pasted content from here, TikTok pasted content from here, Instagram pasted content from your clipboard. So like you know, it's it's cool to see uh, emphasis on that privacy, but then it's also scary to like, wow, that that's been happening this whole time. Like they've been taking your your keyboard strokes on your phone and pasting that into their own program, right? So so what's the risk there? Exactly.
0: Yeah, I, you just said, I don't know if you noticed, I flinched when you said TikTok. Yep, I, yep, I, I, I worked at the CIA for 11 years. I do a lot in espionage spy work for the last 20 years. And I will tell you, I have never seen a better, more perfectly executed espionage mission in my entire life than TikTok. I mean, t- TikTok is created by a foreign government, it gathers individuals, uh, sorry, information about individuals and who is the best demographic to target when you want to steal, gather, or take information? 14 to 18 year olds. And that's exactly what it goes after. So I I joke with my kids. Of course, I have two daughters, so they live and die by TikTok, but but I don't call it TikTok. I'm like, oh. So did you guys go in and contribute to the espionage uh, of the United States today? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, create your TikTok video, right? You got to make sure you're contributing to the espionage mission. Come on, you got I mean, it's just crazy. But that's what the world's coming to is these fun apps aren't fun. They are stealing and taking information from people around the world.
1: Oh man, that's, that's scary. That's scary. Yeah. And I, I've heard a lot about that and you're seeing it, you're seeing it come out more, more in the news, especially, you know, once iOS 14 rolls out, you know, I know Android's working on their stuff too, but like, you know, Apple's predominant here. And once, uh, once Apple rolls that stuff out, like, you know, we're just gonna see more of that. But, but again, you know, that inv- individual user, they see that they're like, Oh, whatever. I don't care. Right. So like, you know, how do we how do we get, you know, and that's that's what it stems into organizations, right? These people eventually they're working in organizations as they come through the system or they already are. And if they don't care about it, then how are we going to secure these companies? Right.
0: Exactly. And to me, what I recommend to individuals, companies and others is the way you sort of secure yourself and your business in cyberspace is you got to go in and separate out the two. You got to go in and have two different devices, two different computers. So, the way that I work and operate is I have my main Windows computer that has my corporate clients, the assessment work, the expert reports that I'm working on. Of course, there's encryption and multi level protection and stuff in place, but I have that main Windows computer that has all of my data and information, of course, backing up to the cloud and others. I only use that when I'm working. When I need to go in and check email, surf the web or do things like that. Because let's face it, web browsers and email clients are the two most dangerous apps on the planet. And it's not because it's more vulnerable, but Windows, because of the 90% install base, is the number one targeted operating system. In our opinion, 97% of all the malware we see out there runs on a Windows operating system because of the large install base. So what I do is, when I get up in the morning, And then midday and evening when I do my three checks of email, I always do it from an iPad. Now, a couple of reasons for that. One, the probability that malware is going to infect that is pretty low. So even if it was malicious and I open on an iPad, it won't negatively impact the device. And if for some reason it does impact the device, I don't have any data on it. I don't have any data or information on it. So the impact to me is very, very low, even if it did get compromised. So now if I'm doing the two most dangerous things on the planet, surfing the web and checking the email from a separate non-windows device that doesn't have any critical data on it now i've greatly reduced my exposure greatly reduced my risk and now that's a much safer way to operate so that's what i always recommend to folks is you got to separate out those two and have one that's work related or financially related and one that you're doing high risk operations on
1: oh i love that I love, I love that and i hate that at the same time because <laughs> like the 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 frictional element of me is like oh man because I, I don't i don't do that now but like to have two separate devices, like that's, you know, for some of us, that's kind of painful. Um, right. But again, like that's what you got to do, right? That's how you do it. But,
0: but I would say, just playing on that a little bit, is I just do an iPad because as I get younger and younger and younger, uh, I, I like the bigger screen. But yeah. most people have a phone and um, they have a computer. You already have two devices. Sure. I know hardly sure. anyone that doesn't. So all you're doing now is you're doing the first pass of your email and you're doing your web surfing on the non-Windows device, and then you're doing your main work on the Windows. So this doesn't have to cost you anything because I don't know anybody, and I know a lot of people, and I don't know anybody that doesn't have at least two or three devices already. It's just better utilizing the devices that you have.
1: It's a very good point, very good point. In my mind, I was picturing like getting two laptops, two phones, two iPads. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little overkill. Uh, Robin has a question for us. She said, uh, can you produce a checklist for a 78-year-old person so we can help those who are technology-challenged? Great question.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's actually uh, pretty easy because I have uh, my nana, uh, I'm Scottish, so I, I call my nana a nana, not a, a grandma, uh, but a nana as my grandma. And, and I tell you, I was really, really scared because she's feisty, she's 87, and three months ago I got a call that my nana was arrested. And I'm like, what do you mean Nana was arrested? She was at a gas station and somebody came over, some younger guy that was 23 to help her pump gas. He was saying he was being nice. She was convinced that he was gonna rob her. So she beat the crap out of him and put him in the hospital. That, 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 that's my Nana, man. She's, she's a tough cookie. So I, I don't want her getting in trouble with any adversary. So what I do with my Nana is real simple. Is she has an iPad and when she's checking email, playing Mahjong, uh, surfing the web, or anything like that, she always uses her iPad. She only uses the iPad. She never does anything else. Then when she's doing her banking, when she's doing her taxes or anything else, there's a computer and she turns it off. It's off 90% of the time and she'll turn it on once or twice a month and use that computer just to do the online banking. And when she has to pay her taxes and then she turns it off, and all of her other activity is on the iPad. So that same solution that I just talked about works perfectly with elderly because Robin brings up a great point. The number one demographic of people that are hit with phishing attacks and they're hit with financial scams are people over 65. And the reason is simple. They're not as computer savvy. They trust people and they tend to have a lot of money because of their retirement. So that's the number one demographic that's hit. So if you just go in and separate the risk. Now, if you wanna take it a level deeper, you can go in and tell somebody over 70, don't click on attachments, don't go in and click on links and emails and things like that, because those are the two number one sources of a compromise is clicking on links and opening attachments. But whether they listen to you or not, is sort of 50-50. The other thing I will tell you is take away all of their debit cards. I know Susie Orman and financial advisors and everyone else tell you debit cards are better because it directly comes out of your account, you're managing it. Cyber scammers love debit cards because debit cards, the money comes directly out of your account and you're liable. So if you get scammed with a debit card for 200 bucks, your bank account will show a deficit of $200 and you have to fight with the bank. You have to prove to the bank that that wasn't you and that could be a very long, hard road to get your money back. But if you use a credit card, if it's a scam, the credit card is out the money, not you, and credit cards are liable, not you. So if you report it as a scam, you don't pay and the credit card resolves it on your behalf. And we've seen this with the COVID where you see all these ads popping up for hand sanitizer, toilet paper, and all this crazy stuff, and it looks like a legitimate store, you order everything you want, and then it comes up with a screen saying, based on high demand, our credit card processing system is down, we're only accepting debit cards. And the reason for that is, now they're getting your money, They're taking it and they're never, ever shipping the product. So the other big thing I would say for anybody, but especially uh, people over 60, is don't use debit cards for anything online. And if somebody calls you on the phone acting like tech support, help support, or anything from a bank, a credit card, or anywhere else, don't give them your password. Don't give them your social security number. I will tell you right now, if the IRS is investigating you, they're not going to have a third person call you and ask for your social. Avoid the scams and get a healthy dose of paranoia, and it'll go a long way to keeping yourself protected and safe.
1: Also, Microsoft doesn't randomly call people to help you with PowerPoint. So
0: Exactly. It doesn't,
1: exactly. Happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen either. Um, uh, you said something earlier, and it triggered something, uh, kind of a story. A little bit. And uh, I want to, you know, if you guys are still viewing this, you know, if you guys have a a story, like a cybersecurity story, you know, let us know in the comments. I'll put the number back up on the screen. You can call in if it's easier just to to tell us your story verbally. But, uh, you know, I had a customer, uh, I still have the customer, but uh, last year, you know, it's it's small numbers, but, you know, they got uh, email phishing, right? Uh, CEO fraud. So what that means is the You know, the perpetrator, the cyber criminal, uh, pretended to be the CEO and said, hey, go to the Apple store and get $15,000 in gift cards. (laughs) So this uh, this employee goes to the Apple store, gets $15,000 in gift cards. His corporate credit card gets declined. Well, big red flag. So then he's like, oh, cool. Uh, My wife's going to think I'm the hero. I'm going to use my personal credit card. I'm going to get points. I'm going to get points (laughs) for buying Apple gift cards for the business and get reimbursed. Uh, well, lo and behold, CEO fraud, email phishing, uh, guy never got reimbursed, and that's now his problem. So, and, you know, that's that stuff's never going to make the news, like you said earlier. I mean, this is like a 300 employee company, like that's never going to make the news. But for that, for that uh, situation, it was devastating for that company. Just like the whole morale of the company just, you know, kind of tanked because of that. You know, so like, what, um, you know, what what are you seeing out there, w- especially with COVID right now, right? Exactly. We've seen the amount of phishing scams and
0: other attack vectors increase ridiculously with COVID because COVID is sort of the perfect dream for cyber criminals. And the reason is this, cyber criminals love when you're fearful and emotional, because if they can get you fearful and emotional, you're going to make rash decisions, which are going to play in their favor. I'll tell you right now, if you get an email, if most people get an email with the subject line that says three of your employees tested positive for COVID. And the email says, here is a spreadsheet that will show you the employees that tested positive for COVID to see if you were around them. Most people without even thinking will open that link and boom, they get hit with some form of ransomware or some other attack vector that compromises their system. So anytime you're getting an email that you're emotional, Avoid the temptation. Don't click. Don't open the attachment. And the best thing I can say, do out-of-band verification. We've seen the number of attacks, the financial scams at companies where the CEO says, buy gift cards. Uh, When you're buying a house, that's a huge one. We probably get at least seven or eight case calls a week where somebody's buying a house and 48 hours, they get an email from the closing company saying, oh, the bank account that the owner wants you to transfer the deposit to has changed, here's the new information. And they forward the email to their uh, closing person and say, hey, is this correct? And they write back and say, yes. What they don't realize is the entire mail system has been compromised and the whole thing's a scam. So anything that involves money, finances, or anything like that, pick up the phone, get in your car, drive to the bank, drive to that person's location, but you have to do out-of-band verification. If people stop trusting email and realized how easy it is to scam and manipulate email, ton of this stuff goes away very, very quickly, but because everyone trusts email and believe email causes so many problems. If you're getting a request for financial transfers, gift cards, or anything like that,
1: call them, text them, or go to their office, but don't trust email. How reliable are these uh, secure email gateway companies, right? Uh, Would you say that that's a great entry-level cybersecurity project for most companies? Like a cybersecurity email gateway, like Proofpoint, Mimecast type thing? Uh, Definitely something
0: uh, to recommend where you go in and, and you have somebody scan, validate, verify the email. But you have to remember is the attacker's also have those products in their lab, and they're always figuring out ways to get around it. So it's a good thing to do. It's sort of like wearing a seatbelt in a car, but it's not guaranteed that it's going to protect you. To me, and I know this is a cultural shift, but to me, the best bet is use email for what it was meant for, which is messages only. Email was never meant to be a file transfer mechanism. It was never meant to be a hyperlink transfer mechanism. So if you're a company that you need to send or receive attachments with your customers, that's part of your business, then set up a secure file transfer mechanism and go and transfer the files that way. With my company, we have our email client set up that doesn't allow hyperlinks and it doesn't allow attachments. So if you want to send us attachments, we'll set up a system with you and we'll transfer that way, or we'll cut and paste into a browser. But just by going in and setting up your mail system to not allow attachments and not allow hyperlinks,
1: once again, small things make a huge difference. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Love that advice. Uh, Jim Young. thank you for sharing, sir. Uh, sharing a story with us. Um, I'll read it out. Says, uh, I got a call saying there was a warrant for my arrest and I needed to go to the store while staying on the phone with them and get $500 in Visa cards and give them the numbers off the back and the warrant will go away. I played with them a little and then hung up after about 30 minutes. Uh, that's, 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 I mean, the, the creativity here uh, of these scammers. Yeah. yeah. The- now, now, now,
0: Jim, Jim, you and me would get along very well. We're, we're, we're cut from the same breed. What I do is when I get those calls... I tell them, oh, hold on a second while I get my car keys so I can get in my car. And then what I actually do is I call the non-emergency police number of the local police department and say, hey, I got a scammer on the line. And then I come back on, I'm like, hey, can, can you go over again exactly what you want me to do? And they say all this, I'm like, and what's your name? Because I have the police on the other line and they like all the, oh, they hang up so quick when you do that. So yeah, I, I love messing around with them a little bit. But but here's the thing, I, I know we joke and smile uh, on this, but but here's the thing that's scary. The reason why they're doing it, the reason why they're calling Jim and they're calling me and they're calling other people is because it works. Think, there are some people out there that do that. There are some people that are naive and don't understand the tech and they think it's real and they don't wanna be arrested or they're afraid of going back to jail. So they do this. So to me, for everyone listening to this show, if this stuff we're talking about, you're smiling or you're saying, yes, I recognize or understand, you have a duty to educate everyone around you. You have a duty to educate anyone you know. And as we said, people over 60 are the number one targeted. I have a rule that twice a day I text or call somebody I know that's over 60 and I spend five minutes and telling them about the threats in cybersecurity. We owe it to the previous generation. We owe it as a group of people to help educate those around us. So don't just take this knowledge and keep it to yourself. Share it with others.
1: I love that. love that advice. That's Awesome. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, uh, Dr. Eric Cole, uh, what what are some uh, resources that that you can't live without that you use daily? Um, maybe some uh, some browser alternatives for us. Uh, it, 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 it's funny because because
0: the way I was going to initially answer that is my journal and my project management tool. I can't live without, but but that's probably not what you're looking for uh, with security. That works too. Yeah, I I would say, I mean, from a security standpoint, the way I approach security is I like to eliminate the vector. I like to do root cause removal of the problem. So what I do is I go in and use two separate devices. I use a very simple iPad. You can use an iPhone for email and web surfing. I always do a first pass of everything on that device. And then I go in and then once I verify and validate the legitimacy of it, Then I go in and use my regular work computer. So yeah, if you go in and you use Firefox with the right plugins and the right issues, could that minimize some of the risk? Absolutely. Does it eliminate the risk? No. By me using a separate computer that has no data on it, that completely eliminates the exposure to me. So I'm a big fan of sort of eliminating, reducing the risk. Other thing for small, medium-sized companies is... I know a lot of people don't like the cloud, but cloud providers do a much better job at security than you and your small team does. They do a much better job than your nephew's uncle's cousin can do. So go in and utilize third-party providers that specialize in security. Turn on as much security. I'd rather have a little inconvenience today than a huge breach in the future. So turn on the text notifications, turn on a two-factor authentication, and then most importantly, probably my best piece of advice, is get a $200 external hard drive. Once a week, plug it into your computer, back up your data, and then disconnect the hard drive. Ransomware attacks are on the rise. They're out there all the time. And I know people that just buy that little $200 drive, back up their data. When they get hit with ransomware, they don't have to pay the five thousand dollars because they have their data and they can recover their data. So protect your data, secure your data, and simple things like an external hard drive go a long way to not having to pay the ransom when you get hit.
1: Oh, awesome! Awesome. Appreciate that. Uh, you said you read one to two books uh, a month or a week. A week. Uh, so what? What's a book? What's a book that you'd recommend for all of us here? Uh, your all-time favorite. Your your best best business book or cybersecurity book. Your pick.
0: I I, I would probably say, because I'm always studying security all day long, so in the evening I don't watch TV, and I read for two, two and a half hours a night when most people are watching TV. That's how I can get that in. I would probably say my all-time favorite book is The Richest Man in Babylon. It's a fictional business fable that actually is factual, and I tell you, if you follow that, I don't care if you work at McDonald's, or you have your own company, you could become a millionaire. It's an awesome, awesome book. My two other favorite, favorite books are Blue Ocean Strategy and uh, Play Bigger. Th- th- those would sort of be my, my three favorite ones out there. Of course, if you're gonna really, really, really push me on cybersecurity books, I'm gonna give you a totally unfair answer and say Advanced Persistent Threat and Network Security Bible, but those are of course my books. So that's why I didn't want to initially lead with that. <laughs>
1: No, no, that, that's that's awesome. I appreciate that. Um, uh, w- one more question: um, What do you think of home VPN companies?
0: Uh, so, so when you say home VPN, I assume you mean uh, setting up an encrypted link out of your house to to a
1: third party location out there uh so, so, like, so this, is, this is on the topic of like the the, the perimeter right so like yes. uh, i'll parlay into this too but like especially with covid the perimeter has always been like evaporating and now we're getting into like i already saw it coming coming out this term uh software defined perimeter like yeah. this new this new wave right so talk about that a little bit yeah so uh
0: With COVID and everything, as we all know, almost overnight, everyone had to work remotely, work from home, which means instead of sitting in an office where you have six or seven security devices that are protecting you, now you sent a lot of these people home and they're using their Windows 7 unpatched system that is infected because their teenager plays and surfs to uh, inappropriate sites on a daily basis on it. And that's what they're now using for work-related activity. So the idea is now, how do we protect those endpoints? So with with home-based VPNs, and there's different styles of those, so I'll cover the two that I'm aware of. The one is where all of your data is encrypted. To me, I'm always a, a root cause guy. I would much rather you secure your wireless at your home. So if you do it correctly, your wireless at your home should have a strong password, it should be encrypted, it should be locked down. So even if somebody is sitting outside or listening in, they won't be able to access it. So I actually prefer that over an encrypted VPN. Now you can still add that on, but where I really like the VPN is with your phone because we don't even realize it, but we're we're still food shopping, we're still going out to stores, we're still doing things. And whenever you're connecting, to any of those public wireless access points. If you don't have a VPN on your cell phone, all that text message and all that information is unencrypted. So you wanna go in and do that. For a business, what I really like is what they're calling SSL VPNs. And what this does is now, you can use any computer you want, but all of the data and all of the information is stored in an encrypted drive on that endpoint, and no data is permanently stored on the endpoint. So with a lot of our clients that had to very quickly overnight go to remote workforce and use personal computers, we just SSL VPN them, and then all the data is protected and secured and nothing resides on the endpoint.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Awesome advice, guys. Hope you're listening and, and eating this up because it's it's uh, the knowledge that you're, the insights that you have here are just phenomenal. I appreciate that. So uh, wrapping up here, uh, leave us with, a, with with one more line. Uh, maybe it's a favorite quote of yours or just something you live by, uh, something in summary and closing for us.
0: Okay. So, so one of my favorite, favorite quotes is, if you don't pursue and live your dreams, someone else will surely pay you to build theirs. So I'm not saying I want everyone to quit their jobs, right? I'm not saying I want everyone to stop working for somebody else. But I'm a very big fan of not only making cyberspace a safe place to live, work, and raise a family, but I believe every techie who's smart and brilliant with skills should be running their own company so they share in all the profits as opposed to working really hard and giving somebody else the profits and making somebody else rich.
1: Uh, Speaking to me, for sure. Uh, 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 And how can uh, people best connect with you? We have your uh, information down here below, but pick pick one of them that is your preference.
0: I'll probably give the one that's not up there because I love staying in touch with people is my email address, ecole, E-C-O-L-E at secure-anchor.com. So questions or comments, let me know. If you have cybersecurity, related questions or you want information, that's my company website, secure-anchor.com. But I also come in my studio every day and I just lay out videos on motivation, entrepreneurship, cybersecurity, and all of those. So if you want to follow that, either YouTube or Instagram is a great way to go in and just monitor and watch those videos. We post two to three every single day.
1: Did I get that right? Secureanchor.com? You got skills, man. You got skills. (laughs) All right. Cool. Thanks for listening to Dialed In. This show is brought to you by Acuerdo.io, the world's first orchestration agency for the future of work. Go check us out at Acuerdo.io. This show could also not be put together without great partners, Robin Austin and Casey Yarbrough of Elevate Exchange, membership for IT leaders. And remember, to win in life, to win in business, to win in your career, it's not about being the strongest, the fastest, or the smartest, it's simply about being the most adaptable to change, the most dialed in.